Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics, and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom, and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Vina Blanchard, the President and Senior Trainer for the International Professional Surrogates Association. Vina has been working in the field of surrogate partner therapy for 49 years. She has a doctorate in human sexuality from the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. She's a master of the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and she's certified in both sex education, and clinical sexology. We are in very capable hands today. Welcome, Vina. It's nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And thank you for being our our guide today um, in this really, really interesting area of work. Um, We are going to get into the nuts and bolts of what's involved in surrogate partner therapy because I think people are really going to want to know about that. But I want to just start by um, asking you about your your love of this work. I know you've been doing it for four decades, which is, you know what, since you were like minus 20 or something. <laughs> I, I was. Very uh, you know, I was introduced to the work by uh, someone who had been a teacher of mine in high school, and she'd gone on to be a therapist. And and I was just barely out of high school and she invited me to participate in a class and it was back in, you know, 192 years ago. And so I said, sure, I'll take a class. And what I saw in that class was that everyone who participated, the 60 year old psychologist, the 35 year old nurse, the me, 19 year old divorcee, uh, we all got something powerful from the process. It was inspiring, it was moving, and um, not just for me personally, but to see each person learn and grow, which gave me a great deal of confidence in the process itself. And then the people who were running the class invited me to uh, take the full training and consider working as a surrogate partner. What was happening in that class, may I ask? Sure. So in that first class that I took and the full training, we were exposed to the basic principles of sex therapy, primarily sensate focus, this focus on sensation and being authentic to your own experience rather than uh, becoming um, anxious about what is other what do other people think about how you're performing or conforming to what you think the other person's expectations are, but actually to pay attention to one's own experience and from and let that be your guide. Um, and there were conversations after every exercise, so people would partner up and do an exercise, hand caress, foot caress, some body image exercises, uh, body caresses, and then to talk about what our experience was. And what I observed was that everyone had a different experience, the person who was partnered with me for an exercise might not have had the same impression of the experience. They thought it was wonderful. I thought it was, you know, I was distracted. And um, or so um, at the end of that class, they asked if I would consider taking the full training, which was a longer, was a 12 week program. And I thought about it quite seriously. I'd been trained as a nursery school teacher and that was fun, but you can't support yourself um, taking care of little children, it turns out. And I could see a relationship between this process as a clinician and the work of a teacher and of a inspiring teacher for young children, especially to give them experiences 
that are supportive and encouraging and safe enough, but also give them a chance to learn and grow. And in the end, after a couple of months of thinking about it, I decided I could do the work. I understood what it was and that I, um, that there was a need for it. That was clear to me. My life and the people in the class had helped confirm that. And so then the question is when there's a need and you can meet the need, why would you not? And especially since there's so few people who could do this. And part of what's difficult about it is that one has to bring one's whole self, your feelings, your um, body, your intellect, all into the room at the same time, your wisdom and also your humbleness because you don't know everything. Um, and so I felt like I'd been raised to do the work, able to love and care for lots of different kinds of people and to talk about feelings and be interested in other people's feelings, empathy, in other words. And so, so when you say, sorry, just one thing, when you say you were raised to do the what, do you mean um, your your parents were teachers in in empathy and connection? Or? We weren't teachers, but they were, my mom especially, encouraging us to know our feelings and talk about our feelings and to be loving and kind, both my parents and the whole community that I grew up in felt like it was about being loving and kind and helping out where you can. So mm. that's what I mean by being raised to it. So anyway, I decided I would give it a whirl at 19. Who knew anything about whole life or what that would be? So it never occurred to me. I'd still be doing it decades later. Well, it sounds like a, a beautiful fit that you came to for, for all the right reasons. Um, I want to just, um, this is where we get into kind of more nuts and bolts, just address straight off the bat, this kind of misconception, misconception about surrogacy. There's a misconception about surrogacy that it's just upscale sex work. Um, can you talk us through the difference between uh, surrogate partner therapy and sex work? Sure. Well, let's start with upscale sex workers get paid a lot more than surrogate partners do. (laughs) (laughs) And um, in surrogate partner therapy, the client is coming to the process to learn how to be intimate, physically and emotionally intimate, And so that they can be intimate in future relationships. Research tells us people go to see sex workers so they can have sexual contact, physical contact, um, without the obligations of relationship. And it isn't about their future skills so much. I mean, not that no one does, of course, but that in general, people are looking for um, emotional healing and education and a launching pad for their future from surrogate partner therapy. They work with a therapist uh, and continually see that therapist and the therapist talks with the surrogate partner so that the therapist, surrogate, and client form a team. That's also different from uh, sex work. And that there's no promise that this is going to involve sex. It's Mm -hmm. about figuring out what the person needs for healing and for some difficulties it's likely that it will involve touch that is sexual. Eventually, um, certain kinds of problems like spastic contraction of the vaginal muscle called vaginismus. Um, ultimately, that woman who had that difficulty would need uh, to be able to work with a partner of some kind to help her uh, apply what she learned in therapy into the erotic and um, specific sexual behaviors arena. And if she doesn't have a personal partner, she might need a surrogate partner to do that. But long before we get to that, there's all these other stages of work, which make it very distinctively different than sex work. There's an initial um, meeting with therapist and surrogate and client that usually happens in the therapist's office or a Hold on, I'm going to just interrupt there because I think, you know, when we're talking about therapist here, we could be talking about like, I'm a therapist but I'm not a sex therapist. So are we talking about a sex therapist or any therapist? Could be any skillful psychotherapist. Um, Oh, great. So I could work with you potentially. 
yes, we could work together. That would be fun. Oh, this is getting exciting. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> therapist who yeah. understands yeah. change and how to help their client change. I know the part about the sex therapy part. Um, and if a therapist does as well, that's helpful. But also if they know about the psychological issues the client has and how to work on those. And sex therapy training is usually an adjunct to psychotherapy training. Um, so uh, could be any therapist, so long as they have, are ethical and attuned to the sort of intention of the process. And then the client generally starts with the, developing the relationship with the therapist. And then together, client and therapist decide if it's necessary to work with a surrogate. Not everybody needs a surrogate partner. Some people have it- spouses that they can work with. Right. Ideally, we we have options, but not always in reality. So I'm wondering as well, can it start out where you just go, uh, the client goes straight into surrogacy without the therapist? Never. No, you have to come in via therapist. They have have to come from the therapist. The therapist needs to do the evaluation and make sure that this is going to be helpful, not hurtful process to them. And also to help them define what are reasonable goals. You know, when I go in to get my haircut, I say, I would like to look young and beautiful and sexy and intelligent. <laughs> That's a lot to ask for my haircut, right? I and love so- that you can do that. I just say, <laughs> I want to look amazing, which just isn't specific enough. <laughs> it doesn't work. My, you know, my list doesn't work either because a hair can't, can't cut can't do all that. And surrogate partner therapy does not solve everybody's problems. Um it's generally for people who don't have a relationship. They may have had one before, but about 50% of our clients have never had a relationship. They're midlife virgins and often midlife sort of naive about uh, intimate relationships as well. Um, some of them have had many, many relationships and they're trying to heal from that. And then um, the first phase of the work with the surrogate is really about teaching basic skills communication skills, self-awareness is a necessary part of communication. If you don't know what you're feeling or where your boundaries are, then you can't talk about them. But we want clients to be able to talk about their feelings, how the process is affecting them, um, how they feel about their lives. So there's a getting to know you period and a building self-awareness and communication and teaching relaxation skills and teaching this mindful awareness All of these can be taught by a sex therapist, Um, but the difference between the therapist, talk therapist of whatever kind, and a surrogate is that surrogates are teaching it in an experiential way. So we're developing the relationship with the client as a way of helping them understand how relationships are developed. We're doing relaxation exercises with them and noticing their breathing and talking about it, but also relaxing next to them and Um, touching hands or face or feet and allowing them to touch our hands and face and feet, each in sort of a structured, gradual uh, stretch of intimacy exercise so that the client learns not only how to relax and feel when they are being touched, but also how to tune into their own feelings when they are active so they can create something of their own experience. And that's the first phase of the work. Does it sound like sex work? Uh, (laughs) Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it's, no, to me, it sounds very like, um, it sounds very like therapy to me, but with this, you know, this added component of touch, um, which when I try that on myself feels huge. If I imagine, and I try not to, but like touching a client, it, it brings on so much more information. Right. Now that's just a, an imagining of it. It's not actually doing it, but um, I feel like we receive, we, we receive, we receive information every which way, but we definitely, I feel like touch is such a sort of huge portal for information. So I guess I understand how it, it's a portal for information about someone else that that's easy for me to see. What I'm wondering is how, if I was doing it, how I would work with that sort of, you know, that, that separation process of what's mine, what's yours and what's ours. Cause I feel like as a therapist, you know, I'm constantly having to track where's my stuff getting in the way. 
um, is this my feeling or is this that, you know, I'm, I'm always doing that sort of sorting. And I'm just wondering if you relate to that on the level of touch and how you deal with your own feelings, both sort of um, just in terms of like sensations and also turn on as and when it occurs. It's part of the reason that the therapist is involved in the process to help us, the client and me, sort that out if it gets confusing. I agree. Imagining being close to someone gives me information without even doing it. And then being close to them might give me totally different information. I once worked with a client with um, a pretty severe case of um, well, what we used to call Asperger's, but he was you know, on the autism spectrum. He was verbal and competent and could work in the world and all that. But he presented um, fairly robotically. And you wouldn't know that there was a tender touch behind that and, a, and an emotionality that he could bring through touch that he couldn't bring through talk. So the surrogate perhaps gets information that the talk therapist wouldn't have. Oh, sure. <laughs> I also can help provide information to the client and the therapist that the client just isn't aware of, like, like that they hold their breath. Uh, when they're scared. And then that increases anxiety and we can teach them how to breathe through that and do it together. Um, and wow. sometimes we are the three of us just like investigators, you know, like we are Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, and a third, you know, like investigator trying to figure out what does this mean? How do we help solve this unique problem for this person to get them beyond where they are blocked into a place of self-awareness and ability to be um, vulnerable, intimate, exposed to another person to whatever extent they would like to be um, and to feel safe in doing so. And even eventually to safe to get out of relationships or to stop activities that they don't want. Um, mm, and being able important. to consent is an important part of the entire process. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, you know, as you're talking and describing this communication um, between the, the therapist and the surrogate and the client, um, it's making me realize there's, there's this other sort of component of the healing, at least as I imagine, which is um, for the client to receive, you know, the expert listening, well, two expert listeners, right? One, one the listening through touch, the other, the listening through words and and to have two people kind of on your team like that, you know, sharing information and caring about you and coming up with solutions must be more powerful. Well, I don't know about more powerful, but it seems like extra powerful, you know, above and beyond powerful. Is. Yeah, I think it is. nourishing. A lot of therapists are unsure about the process. Um, if they've not been trained in it or they haven't had exposure to it, they worry, will it be too powerful for the client and emotionally overwhelming? Mm -hmm. Will they have love feelings that then turn into hurt feelings? Um, or, and what my experience is, what always happens is that we engage in the process, they see the power of it and the transformative power and it improves their work and their clients' lives and then they become fans. Um, it does require some extra work on the therapist's part. They have to spend time talking to me and I'm talkative. So <laughs> it can be 15, 20, 30 minutes a week, extra time, but it's so um, enlightening. And I think for a lot of therapists, it's they feel partnership with their clients, but now they have a partnership with a, a person who is looking at the same level that they are at the at the client's growth and change. And so um, sometimes it's a little lonely to be a therapist and it's nice to have somebody on your team helping out with a difficult client. I don't know what you mean. You know, I've never, <laughs> felt, <laughs> I've never felt lonely as a therapist. Oh gosh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, probably the main reason I do this, this podcast is to connect to other healers and, and to keep learning and growing. And, you know, I do learn and grow from other therapists, but I learn and grow so much more from people in other sort of realms of care. And um, it, for me, it reminds me, you know, therapy can get a bit heady sometimes, as you know, and, and it, it reminds me when I meet people in other sort of healing professions, like, 
you know, that essentially we're all in it, you know, for the, the same reason. We all have the same goals and it's really beautiful sharing different, um, different skill sets and modalities. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like all roads lead to Rome. You know, this is all about helping people, you know, align with themselves and, you know, go forth oh. and have beautiful lives and, and relationships. Uh, easier said than done that a lot of the clients come into this process because they're particularly troubled about a relationship problem or issue they're having or sexuality problem. But inevitably what we're doing is dealing with a whole person that they're not just anxious in sex or perfectionistic or avoidant in sexuality, that that's a life issue for them. And so not only are we making a change in this one area, it often um, sort of blossoms out into the rest of their lives. One of my favorite moments in every case is when the client walks in the door and says, oh my God, it's like the colors have been turned on in the world. You had me pay attention to sensation and feelings and notice flavors. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm awake in my life. And that happens out in the world. It's not just in our sessions. There's a tenderness to this process. The client's um, are um, vulnerable and therapists and surrogate need to be aware of that, careful with the client's well-being, not take advantage of the client's needs. And it's also true that the surrogate is vulnerable in the process, that we are showing up with real feelings. And so we make an arrangement with clients from the beginning that we will have a closure session, that nobody's disappearing on anybody, no ghosting allowed. So that we can process whatever happened, positives and negatives, and, you know, we've reached the end of the road together and we're celebrating, or the client doesn't feel like they want to continue for some reason, and we get a chance to say goodbye. They get a chance to say goodbye and end with integrity, and we get a chance to say goodbye and give back responsibility for their lives that we've taken on some of. When the And often clients continue with their therapist beyond when they're working with the surrogate partner to keep generalizing what they learned, the relaxation, the self-awareness, the tuning into their own experience, the body image changes or ideas that have uh, been put in place, or their new sense of their capability as a powerful erotic person, able to ask for what they want, able to choose partners who want the same things and not keep trying to be, you know, like a dead relationship into submission to give it what they want that it doesn't want to give or that their partner doesn't want to give. Um, And the ultimately that they get to leave with all of those, this changed sense of self, even though the relationship was temporary, the new relationship they have with themselves is permanent. Well, I say bring on all these powerful erotic people. Keep going, <laughs> Vina, you know, please. Um, this just, oh, I love this work and I'm so, so excited to hear about it. I want to get back into the process. I think we started off um, talking about having, uh, bringing more awareness into the body and working mm-hmm. on very sort of simple forms of touch. Can you, can you guide us from there? Typical sure. process. One of the keys for all sex therapy is to help clients relax into their present moment experience. We're trying to make it something and actually just feel what it is to feel themselves and perhaps their connection with their partner. And so the first part of surrogate partner therapy is teaching relaxation and a surrender into touching objects. Not even a person, because then you don't worry. What does the rock think about the way I'm touching it? You can actually feel it. And for some people, that's eye-opening. And for some people, it's not. Each session is a small stretch from the previous session, gradually exposing the client to um, the opportunity to feel. There's a hand caress is often the next exercise where the surrogate partner touches the client's hands and focuses on the surrogate's own feelings, not giving a great hand massage, but actually feeling the skin and being conscious and present. I've had clients cry because they don't remember ever having been touched in a conscious way before, or it's been 
decades or since they were children, since they were nurtured in that way, the conscious attention, it's not to give them that experience, but it's to pay attention and people feel when you're actually present in the touch. And then to give the client an opportunity to be active and touch the surrogate partner's hand to actually feel the sensation in their own skin and to keep their attention on themselves. Some people worry that this is selfish or that they'll do something harmful. So we make an agreement up front. I'll tell you if I need you to stop and please you tell me if something's not comfortable. I wouldn't want to do anything that you didn't want or that was hurtful to you. So we make a deal that we'll tell each other if it's not comfortable and I'm never mad and um, or upset and I don't get, take it personally if somebody feels ticklish or it's too intimate or scary. I had one client, he was afraid, it was aversive to all touch, all touch. He could shake hands and that was the only touch he had ever allowed since he was a little kid. And um, watching other people touch actually made him feel nauseous. So he had a unusual condition of sort of touch aversion and um, is a useful case to think about because it's, it demonstrates how slow the process can be. We just sat across the room from each other and talked for a while until he was ready for me to move halfway towards him from my seat, bringing my chair forward. And I had a, a, a large enough office that I could even halfway was still like three or four feet away from him. And then as he was more comfortable, a session or two down the road, I was able to move another foot or two towards him and eventually to sit with my knees near his facing him. And, um, and we're just talking about the weather and life and his feelings in the moment and helping him breathe and relax and be comfortable. And then uh, we did the objects exercise where he touched the objects and that was okay for him. Touching objects was not a problem. But the idea of any kind of human touch was um, so upsetting to him that first I just had him caress a towel, put a pillow in his lap and touch the pillow and then touch a towel. And then eventually he allowed me to touch his hands through the towel. And then eventually he touched my hands through the towel. And then eventually he allowed the towel to be removed so we could be skin on skin. Many sessions, um, not necessarily what sex work looks like, and, but what therapy looks like, right? This gradual exposure to something that's scary in such safe ways that it no longer triggers the anxiety. And so in therapy language, we call that a successive approximation and desensitization, which just means we do it in teeny little steps so we get more comfy. And yeah, um, I would call it radical patience and love, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's very easy because we're together, partners, trying to figure out what's the next comfortable step. And it's got to be gentle. Clients shouldn't feel anxiety sort of above a halfway mark on any anxiety scale. It should be on the low end. And if it's not, we need to do a teeny bit less because practicing being uncomfortable is a terrible idea. We've been doing that our whole lives. We don't need more practice being uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I'm reporting to the therapist and he's reporting to the therapist. And the therapist is participating in the decisions about how to move forward and helping the client process what happened and think about it. So in a sense, because you can't learn a new language just practicing one hour a week, the time with the therapist is a way of reimagining it and integrating it and integrating it into a sense of self that isn't just inside my office. And then we eventually moved from hands to feet through socks and then eventually touching feet directly and eventually um, uh, touching the back from the shoulders to the belt line and eventually faces and hair. That was much more challenging for this particular client, super easy for somebody else. If it's easy, we do it and enjoy it. If it's difficult, you know, we spend a little more time getting it comfy. And um, meanwhile, through this process, he's learning that he can trust me. And I'm learning that I can trust him. Um, he had did not have a goal of being sexual in the work. He had a goal of getting over his touch aversion. And we got up to the point where we disrobed to wearing just um, 
sort of the equivalent of bathing suits, you know, bras and panties and stuff like that, and touched skin. And he said, great, I know how to do this. I know how to teach my partners how to go slow. I'm done. And we had a closure session in which, you know, we all celebrated and then he went and lived his life. Beautiful example. Thank you for that. Um, Wow. Um, So, okay. So just keeping going through this process. So because this guy was fine to leave off there, other people are going to want to go all the way through, whatever that means. Um, I suppose it's different for everyone, right? As you said. Mm -hmm. So, so what's the next step? So it's, it goes from hands to feet to back to face. Somewhere in there depending on how they're comfortable or not. But that's all sort of at the same kind of level of nurturing, comforting, relaxing, trust building. That's the first phase. The second phase is where we start um, doing things that could not be done by a therapist. So we'll do Mm -hmm. body image work and disrobing. And I take off clothes too and talk about my body image issues, which I have plenty of. and, And they get to discover that other people are, nervous too. And, um, it's, a it's not just getting physically naked, but revealing all the feelings that we have and what those are tied up with, whether are you like, standing in front of a mirror when you do this? We so are. You're standing next to each other and then in front of a mirror. So we take turns in front of the mirror generally, and then we stand in front together. Um, mm. so that the person first is really just talking to themselves, seeing what they see, learning, to look with softer eyes. I still haven't mastered that. And to uh, and to see, really see rather than judge. And, um, and then eventually we're in the mirror together to see what we as this kind of new temporary couple look like. That's very sweet. I like that last bit. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to ask, sorry, um, just because I feel like this is so relevant um, globally, our, our body image, um, and the way that we struggle with it and, and struggle with being kind to ourselves around, around body image. I'm just wondering, um, other specific invitations to speak more kindly to yourself or to get the shadow out first or like how, what, is there a process? Cause I think it could be useful for people to even sort of internalize. So it depends. It does depend on the person. Let's be clear. 95% of American women and I'm here in the U.S., uh, have negative body image. It's mostly related to weight, occasionally to specific body parts that they have been told are not attractive, or a style. So I had one client who was told she was too masculine because she was tall and athletic. Um, And for men, um, it's often... It used to be that it was kind of like if they were starting to lose their hair or they weren't particularly tall and they have a lot of worries about penis size. That's a part of our image and the thing that if we're a negative view of that can stop us from being willing to reveal that to someone. And some people have been teased or more than teased, ridiculed for some particular body part. And so depending on whether it's an issue for them or not. And honestly, I'm always surprised. There are people for whom it's not. They're like, sure, I'll take my clothes off. No biggie, totally comfy. Um, It used to be the case that men were more like that. Um, In our culture, I think there's been a shift so that the hyper-perfectionism and the sculpted body form has become, uh, was not, is not just expected for female-bodied people, but now for male-bodied people. And everyone basically is expected to look like models, all of whom, you know, don't even look like that. There's all this Photoshopping and stuff. I had a client, I was explaining it to him and he goes, yeah, I know. That's what I do for a living is Uh I go in and I Photoshop away the natural softness of bodies and make them, you know, look extreme, which was funny. So um, typically... We'll first just talk about their history. We'll talk about what it was like growing up in their family, how their family related to bodies. Some cultures, there's a lot of negativity about bodies or um, in others. Like I had a client, he grew up in Mexico. He and his parents and his 13 siblings lived in a one-room place. There's no privacy. There's no shyness. That's everybody's 
sleeping, changing everything in front of each other. That's a different reality than someone who grew up where they were nudity was shunned and they, uh, you know, from the culture where they have to cover themselves head to toe. So we try and address the family issues, the cultural issues, the religious issues, and the therapist is helping to uncover these things as well. So we're reporting back and forth. Um, a lot of clients were bullied or teased for what they looked like. I think that's not uncommon for humans to have been teased a little bit and some people were also accepted and so the teasing landed more softly than people who didn't fit in and were rejected uh, for other things um, and so we talk about it and then I invite them would they be comfortable uh, taking something off if they're not we might just stand and look at each other head to toe really seeing each other's hair and face and nose and lips and neck and jaw and, and shoulders and doing a scan of the whole body and actually seeing and being seen with clothes on can be like a useful smaller step. Some people, they don't want to do that looking. That's too scary. And so they'll say, I would rather uh, not do that. And so we might do something where they can take their shirt off and lay down face down so they're not face to face with someone and maybe they don't feel shy about their backs. Um, every client is different. And so we are asking what is comfortable and tolerable and desirable for them and then trying to match them uh, within boundaries. Um, eventually we hope to have all our clothes off and looking at each other head to toe and having conversation about our, um, how it feels and what we see and it's not uncommon for people to be very scared about doing it and then get more comfortable once it's done. Not a big deal. Um, and especially when they're standing next to a real person, as opposed to comparing themselves to some magazine that's unreal. Um, so standing next to a real person, what we all really look is human, you know, like not perfect. Um, and they will talk about what they see. It's kind of a meditation. Uh, communing with themselves and letting me listen. And I will do the same. Usually I go first to demonstrate. Um, I wish I had more positive things. You know, I had a perkier, better body image that I could uh, um, bring to the table. I bring the truth, which is, eh, you know, there's things I always didn't like. And it didn't matter what had changed in my body. I just always picked on that part myself and other parts I like or I, other people like, or I have good feelings about how it feels instead of how it looks and the sensation and the pleasure and the, um, or, or the ability that it is my vehicle for moving through this life and this world. And I appreciate it for all the ways it can dance and smell and taste and, and, um, be sexual. And, um, and so we try and broaden the sense of body from just what we look like to all the ways we can love it and appreciate it, whether we like our nose or not. Um, and I don't think we have to have perfectly positive feelings about ourselves to be um, worthy of love and pleasure. And so all we're trying to do is get to the place where people are not letting negative ideas get in the way of their being available for the things that can be lovely. There's a meme I saw that I captured years ago that said some version of, you know, it is possible to be perfect and a work in progress at the same time. And, you know, so yeah, we're works of in progress. And then that uh, the reward for that nudity is that then we get to touch more of the skin and relax and have the whole backside of the body touched. Skin on skin feels lovely and it's soothing and comforting. And now we're not in our head and what we think, but we're in the actual experience of the body and listening to it instead of all those, you know, chattery thoughts. Beautiful, beautiful. So then what happens? That middle phase of the work we think of as a whole body acceptance and sensuality phase. And 
it is its own important phase of the work, but it is towards the end, um, can we begin to add information and sort of conversations about genitals, incorporating the genitals into this whole body touch, not as a, for sexual purposes, of course, sexual feelings can happen anywhere, anytime. You could be driving down the road and have a sexual That's feeling. Right. And so it's absolutely possible anywhere in the work that sexual feelings could have emerged. But when we're, um, uh, as we're touching more of the whole body and incorporating genitalia, we know there might be erotic feelings triggered from those touches. So we, um, before we get to the sexual stage of the work, we're trying to integrate uh, breasts and genitals into a whole sense of self. And then some sex education, STD conversations and contraceptive conversations and stuff so that clients are um, sexually literate, can go out into the world, have those conversations with partners, set boundaries for themselves, uh, take good care of themselves. And that has to happen before we would get to what we would think of as more sexual work. The sexual stage of the work, um, I don't ever really want to get to that stage if the clients haven't mastered the sensate focus and if we don't have an emotionally intimate relationship. Um, people are differently capable of each of those things, but that's our goal is that we're really deeply connected as human beings, not necessarily romantically, but open and vulnerable to each other as people. And um, and the client is very aware of their own feelings and also that they have mastered uh, sort of the whole boundary setting consent process. It's integrated into the work from hello. Clients are never required to do anything that's not okay with them. Neither is the surrogate. We talk with each other. And if we don't feel like doing something, this sort of harkens back to that thing you were talking about before about how we feel about somebody tells us about them. So if a surrogate doesn't feel like being close with a client, that's information since surrogates typically feel like being close to people. And if, if you've managed to convince me, I don't want to do that with you, then that tells us where you have work to do. Um, you mentioned it's possible that it could be the surrogates issues at any point. Surrogates issues can get triggered. We're people, we're humans. We could get defensive or sad or attached or whatever, but it's our job to process that and understand the clinical meaning of all those feelings and to share them. And if it's just our stuff to work it through. When I hit about 50, uh, clients started talking about my age and unattractiveness. It was quite painful. And, uh, and then at some point it occurred to me, there was something in there for me to work on. And when I did some work, internally about my own aging and got more self-accepting. Magically, my clients became more self-accept or more accepting of me. <laughs> okay. I have to get in on this one. All right. So, I mean, another huge issue, right? Aging and how we feel about it and the perception of it in culture, how it ties in with sexual viability. Give us your tips. How did you move through this, this painful prejudice? You know, I, this is not typical of me, but I sort of took a karmic point of view, like, well, it's your karma that you got me now and you didn't come into therapy earlier and get me when I was younger. And I have wisdom and I have my own kind of beauty that other people can see, even if I'm having trouble or you're having trouble. And I think also I, um, I just accept it. Yes, I am older. And that has changed some stuff about my body and my attractiveness to some people. And I, I accept that. That's just a, a part of the sort of arc of life. And I am not really interested in people all that young for my personal self either. But I can, I can meet you. I can be your, you know, river guide here. I can take you on an amazing journey for a moment. And if you don't need me to be, to look like the girl you would marry and have children with, then um, I can help you 
be more open to your own self and then eventually to your own aging self because we do all if we are lucky enough we age there and- is that catch right sorry young folks out there but uh happens happens to the best of us do you know what i mean um yeah no and, i think you know there is beauty yeah. i can see the beauty in other people i could see it in my friends i could see how they still were gorgeous human beings at 80 years old i just was having a little trouble in myself and that made me probably project a little of it or be vulnerable to it or just not process it all that well. And I just, no therapist helped me with that issue. I just worked it out myself. Uh, ultimately, this, this is a opportunities. <laughs> I, I bet. I bet. No, I mean, I think these, yeah, these uh, pieces are kind of like that, that's core personal work. And I, there is a this yeah. spiritual component about it because of course it is about sort of greater acceptance of, you know, our, massive lack of control, you know, um, and our susceptibility to time, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty scary stuff when you really think about it. Um, yes, so very. that's why most of us try not to. <laughs> that's why we try not to. And that's why we fetishize youth so much, right? This idea that there's this sort of, uh, exonerated place, uh, that isn't sort of susceptible to the winds of change. And of course it's all, it's all a lie, but you know, lies can be it fun is. too, I suppose. <laughs> but I do well, think it is, this thing- it is, it is a lie. Because young yeah. people can die too. We're afraid of our own death. And and honestly, I think that drives a lot of clients into therapy is they all of a sudden realize, not all of them, some of them are still young, but a lot of them, they waited, 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 thinking this might fix itself. And then they realize death is around the corner, whatever that is for them, and they're 40 years away or 15 years away. But they begin to realize that this is not going to fix itself that this is their job and they kind of are sad and resentful that in their life they have to work on this in this way but everybody has to work on something nobody gets out of this without doing some work i knew i had a client who was like a golden boy just like everything came so easily to him until it didn't you know and that was devastating and his and when it quit working he started having sexual problems because I thought that's where you were going when you said it stopped working. I was thinking, oh, suddenly he couldn't get hard-ons anymore. Was that was basically right? But he also yeah. you know, he lost his job. He lost uh, um, he lost yeah. his health. He um, he lost some mentors. It was traumatizing moment where he realized he wasn't so blessed, and then the erections went away, and. So he gets to work on that and become a much better human being as a result. Probably a better lover too, I would imagine. I imagine. <laughs> you know, so don't <laughs> you can't just pull the imagine card. All right, I'm going to go back because I, I know that there's one more stage, right? So right. not everyone gets to the, the genital stage. Um, but some but people those, do. Some people do. And then is that sort of full-fledged sex or how does that work? So it depends on the nature of the client's problem. Um, so certain kinds of problems often require some work with the surrogate partner in the more the genital stage of the work and the more erotic stage of the work. And so uh, rapid ejaculators. Now, some people, they're on the verge at a hand caress. But most people, it's at the sexual stage of the work where they need to learn to relax and be self-aware and shift their, not only their awareness, but the relaxation in their body and how to apply the techniques that they've learned up until now. The uh, a, a person, vagina owner with a vaginismus can't tolerate penetration. It's painful. Uh, it might They might even have such spastic contraction of the muscle that they, uh, the penetration's not possible. And she would have worked on her own with uh, dilators, fingers, her on herself first, but eventually she needs to work with a partner. There was an interesting study in Israel uh, about in 2005 where um, two groups went through the therapy process with the same sets of therapists. One group were uh, women who had vaginismus and they worked with their personal partners. And uh, the other group was women who had vaginismus and worked with surrogate partners. 
And um, at that stage of the work, um, the woman is directing the penetration, guiding it, using words to tell the person what they can and cannot do. And it's often with fingers and dilators. And then eventually, if the person has that available, a penis, but she's having this ability to control it with her words rather than having this anxiety reaction. Um, and what they found in Israel in that particular study was that the women who worked with surrogate partners were actually more successful than the people who worked with personal partners because the surrogate didn't get impatient. They didn't have personal needs come up. They didn't leave therapy. They hung in. So the couples um, that were the surrogate and client made it all the way through the treatment process, whereas many of the other couples, uh, the partners bailed on the process. And that mirrors what Masters and Johnson found when they did their research in the 60s, which they published in 1970, in which they said that male clients working with female surrogate partners or their personal partners. Um, the working with a surrogate partner was equally or more successful than, so I forgot how I started that sentence, working with the surrogate partner was as successful as or more successful than working with a personal partner. So we have this research decades apart saying working with a surrogate partner is, is at least as good as working with a personal partner, partly because what Masters and Johnson found is you need a cooperative partner. So uh, for some people with sexual difficulties, their partners are too sad or too impatient or too frightened. What does this mean for my future? And so their anxiety or their needs get in the way of them being available to do this very gradual, systematic retraining of the client's body and their psychology. And so, yes, it might go all the way up to the point of in intercourse um, and um, oral sex or hands-on genitals to the extent that that is necessary for the client's growth and learning. It's not, um, not every client needs it. Some clients need very little of it. Some clients, um, they might like to stay forever, but this isn't a place you can stay and do that forever. It's just so long as it's like needed for their learning and healing. For people who were molested, this might be like I had a client who was molested for six years as a child. It stopped when he was 12. And um, it was by a family member. And so there's all the betrayals of intimacy and convoluted uh, feelings about wanting the love and attention, but not wanting it in that form. We didn't take a stitch of clothing off for a year and a half, not a stitch of clothing. We worked for a month and a half on him saying the words, I want just to say the words I want, forget whatever followed, was excruciating work for him. Um, but eventually we got to where we could disrobe and we got to where we could caress and touch and eventually where he could be sexual and not be triggered into thoughts about the molest experience. And it was life-changing for him. Everything changed for him in his sense of self. And I thought, and the therapist thought, He's done all the behaviors he's done with therapy. And we were talking to him about after three years, congratulations. And he said, I'm not done yet. And you know, because we were a great team, all of us, I said, so what's left? If, if, if there's something left, what's left? And he said, I have not fully accepted and embodied my power around sexuality. I've always been afraid that I could hurt someone the way I was hurt. And I need a place where I can let the brakes off and see it where I know you'll take care of yourself. And so he brought full erotic energy that was necessary for his healing, everything that he had. And he held back nothing. And that included the very last piece, which was to say he felt love for me. Um, he wasn't in love with me. He wasn't looking for me to be his future partner, but he felt his heart had opened. And of course, I 
you know, that didn't surprise me that he felt that. I thought we'd been feeling that all for a very long time because I certainly had love for him and still do. I haven't seen him in forever, decades, but um, he, it, we did very powerful change. I had a client recently go through the process, um, tying into some of um, this other stuff you talk about in your podcast, who has um, a practice where he uh, does some guiding with people with um, psychedelics. And his comment was, he said, if only the psychedelics were as powerful as the work that, you know, we did in the touch, because something very powerful opened up, cracked open that consciousness to the presence. And the only thing that comes close for him was psychedelics next to sex. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, I have to say, I always say that sex is the strongest psychedelic, but we could go further with that and say, you know, uh, intimacy, maybe we can go further than that and say, you know, acceptance. I think that's the, you know, that's the, that's the mother load. That's the, the Rome, the all healing roads, you know, uh, want to, want to get to, right. The, the, the coming home to, to self. Um, and it Beautiful seems like you're, you're, thank you. And that your work is so, uh, so much about that. I mean, one thing on the, on the falling in love front, I mean, I cannot imagine anyone working with you and not falling in love. I mean, it just, how can you not fall in love when someone is so loving and patient and kind with you and that you have this intimacy with them? I think we have love, which is not the same thing as being in love. I'm a flawed human being. I'm old. I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily the person they would pick across, you know, the crowded room with enchantment. Uh, but you've I been doing this they, since you were 19. So you've, I'm sure, witnessed all a myriad of projections. Yes, but I, I think on purpose, I am very real. And... I don't invite and encourage them to imagine that I am the source of all goodness. It is their conscious opening that brings, that opens to that which is here. And I'm, um, I am a loving guide. I feel like I'm a parent and a teacher and a friend and a lover all wrapped up in one. And I think they will never have a relationship quite like the one they have with me. They don't get to go to the movies with me or have Thanksgiving with me or sleep over with me. There's a lot of things that aren't available. And part of the reason for those boundaries is so there's some reason to leave and go have a life, right? And also because I need to be able to be available to help the next person on the road. Right. You can't do the Netflix and chill with every, with every client, right? Just don't have, <laughs> yeah, so don't have we don't, we don't at all. Although, although I have had clients bring in movies and say, I want to show you this clip for oh, music. Very naughty, to- very sneaky. They're trying to lure you in. They'll be there with the popcorn next to you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would be vulnerable to the popcorn. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Let's have, you know, 15 minutes of a movie and popcorn, and then we'll yeah. get down to work. The um, So I love them too. I do. Yeah. I don't, I'm not in love with them, but I have compassion and empathy and attachment to their well-being. I had a client, not a surrogate client, actually a talk therapy client kind of disappear. And I, I wrote to him and said, it's fine if you don't want to come back into therapy, but can you let me know you're okay? Because I want to, close that that chapter for myself or that book. And that's the reason that we have a fourth phase of the work too, which is closure. So that we can go all the way through all that and we can save the saying goodbye and the feelings about our parting for its own stage. We do a conscious uncoupling. We celebrate what we've been. We acknowledge where it didn't, where it wasn't easy. And, um, and I wish them good life. And I give them back responsibility. I let go. I could not have done this for decades if I didn't let go at the end and let them be in charge of their own lives without me. I'd be too much baggage carrying around. 
Oh, yeah, I know. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, well, these structures are, and rituals are so important, aren't they, to, to uh, give us a sense of safety. People need to learn how to say goodbye. And yeah. we don't know how. And they're afraid to get in relationships because they don't know they can get out. Um, and um, so they learn that they can get out, that they can say stop to the relationship, just like they could say stop to any exercise we were doing, just like they can say stop to people who are abusing them. And that's a, a really important part of the process is to know themselves and set their boundaries and ask for what they need and want, including I want out. Um, and I don't think they, I, I rarely have people run from therapy with me, um, but sometimes they get trapped in other relationships. Uh, so I want them free. And I also need to know that they, like sometimes, and you will know this from just doing therapy, that when the work gets hard and people get uncomfortable, doesn't mean it's not working. It's often when it is and they're growing and changing and change feels uncomfortable. And so we have this deal that they'll hang in and come and talk to me in case what's happening is that they're just having like a little resistance before the breakthrough. Um, and, or if we need to change something to make it more comfortable for them or more sort of appropriate for their level, maybe it's too much or too slow. Um, and the, so we have this closure. Hopefully it's because everything was super successful and we're throwing a party and saying, thank you very much. No, thank you very much. And, um, and goodbye. Uh, and I give typically um, uh, some suggestions to my clients, often written out uh, to suggest things they can do to keep practicing and learning, whether it's take a yoga class or travel the world or, you know, write a profile for online dating or whatever that is a suggestion and some reminders about breathing and relaxing and being present, um, which I think is, if there's a panacea, that's it. Mm, relaxing and being present. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very easy to come by, by the way, in today's world. <laughs> Thank God you're there to do the work that you do. Um, Vina, I'm really in awe of, of your work. It's so wonderful to hear more about it. And thank you so much for, for sharing so, so intimately and so thoroughly. And I, I want to close, um, with a sort of general question about, um, your, your vision for, for surrogacy and the future of surrogacy, if you have one or, or any high hopes for healing in general. Well, about surrogate partner therapy, I, I made a decision when the community of surrogates got very small in the late 80s and early 90s. And I made a decision to focus on training people and um, to be skillful and ethical and um, to keep the work going long beyond me so that clients would have access to this. And that's still my hope and dream. And in now there's, you know, we went from a handful of surrogates to um, you know, a hundred plus surrogates in the country, which is back to like what it was in the very, in the early days in the seventies. Um, I think I wish that people would treat the healing arts as sacredly as you and I do. I think that um, there's a bunch of people who just see it as a way to make money and they take a weekend class. Not much just, money, babe. <laughs> Not much they money. They take a weekend yeah. class. Well, some of them, I think it is. You know, they take a well, weekend yeah. class. They deem themselves Oh, highly, the new shamans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, exactly. Yeah. The new shamans. And then... And I don't think they have a clue what they're dealing with, how powerful it is, how, what they can shake loose. And so I wish, you know, more people would only do the healing work if their real motivation is the client's well-being and not money. Um, I think it's a beautiful intersection between 
psychotherapy and surrogate partner therapy between personal growth and learning and surrogate partner therapy, yoga, surrogate partner therapy. Like these are, it's all swimming in that same uh, river of uh, soothing and healing in ways that aren't just about the symptom, but it's about like the whole human being being loved and respected. And um, I love the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're having. I think it's, you know, this is, this is how we get there is that people speak out loud about what is possible and other people hear it. And it, you know, it like cracks the shell a little bit. Yeah, this is, this is my, my prayer too. And, um, you know, I heard about you from my dear friend who's been doing your training. Uh, she's training to become a surrogate after a you know, big career and in, in many other things, but, uh, you know, is, she is just so inspired, uh, by you and your training. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's so wonderful that you're providing that. And actually I I'd like to open this up to, you know, where can we find you if someone wants to train with you or work with you or how does this, this work? Sure. So it's easy to find me because it's, you know, one can write to um, me directly through my website, uh, which is drvenablanchard.com. Vena is V-E-N-A, drvenablanchard.com. But the training I do through the International Professional Surrogates Association, and they have a website, uh, surrogate therapy.org. And through that, you can read about the training, read about what surrogate partner therapy is. If people need uh, uh, to reach out for referrals, they can contact me directly. But if they're looking to do the training, the best way to come in is through the IPSA website. I'm available. If people want to, you know, uh, uh, ask questions, they can ask me directly. I'm a little slow to get back to them because the volume of stuff that comes in is, uh, I have to weed through that. And it, this last election season, it's been all election materials burying on top of all the other stuff. Um, but, uh, through IPSA or me directly either way. Thank you for being so, so generous and, and open to the listener. I think we all appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Bina, this is just wonderful talking to you and I'm, I'm excited to send clients to you who knows I may turn up personally one day <laughs> just get ready who knows what's gonna happen uh that <laughs> would be excited. fabulous Jane I can't I can't tell you how excited I would be to work with you oh. train with you refer surrogates to you I you know Thank you. it's not always the case that I'm the right person either as a therapist or the surrogate partner for a client and so then I make referrals all week long to other people to be continued then. Okay. Really looking forward to it. Thank you, Vina. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Many thanks. Bye-bye.